Chapter 4 of Miss Cayley's Adventures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bev Stevens. Miss Cayley's Adventures by Grant Allen. Chapter 4 The Adventure of the Amateur Commission Agent. My eccentric American had assured me that if I won the great race for him, I need not be scared lest he should fail to treat me well, and to do him justice, I must admit that he kept his word magnanimously. While we sat at lunch in the cosy hotel at Limburg, he counted out and paid me in hand the fifty good gold pieces he had promised me. "'Whether these Deutschers fork out my twenty thousand marks or not,' he said, in his brisk way, "'it don't much matter. I shall get the contract, and I shall have gotten the advertisement.' "'Why do you start your bicycles in Germany, though?' I asked innocently. "'I should have thought myself there was a much better chance of selling them in England.' He closed one eye and looked abstractedly at the light through his glass of pale yellow brown burger with the other. England. Yes, England. Well, you see, miss, you have not been raised in business. Business is business. The way to do it in Germany is to manufacture for yourself, and I've got my work started right here in Frankfurt. The way to do it in England, where capital's dirt cheap, is to sell your patent for every cent it's worth to an English company, and let them boom or bust on it. I see, I said, catching at it. The principle's as clear as mud the moment you point it out to one. An English company will pay you well for the concession and work for a smaller return on its investment then you Americans are content to receive on your capital. That's so. You hit it in one, miss. Which will you take, a cigar or a coconut? I smiled. And what do you think you will call the machine in Europe? He gazed hard at me and stroked his straw-coloured moustache. Well, what do you think of the Lois Cayley? For heaven's sake, no! I cried fervently. Mr. Hitchcock, I implore you. He smiled pity for my weakness. Ah, high toned again, he repeated, as if it were some natural malformation under which I laboured. Oh, if you don't like it, miss, we'll say no more about it. I am a gentleman, I am. What's the matter with the Excelsior? Nothing, except that it's very bad Latin, I objected. That may be so, but it's very good business. He paused and mused, then he murmured low to himself. When through an alpine village passed, that's where the idea of the Excelsior comes in, see? It goes up Mont Blanc, you said yourself, through snow and ice, a cycle with the strange device. Excelsior. If I were you, I said, I would stick to the name Manitou. It's original and it's distinctive. Think so? Then chalk it up. The thing's done. You may not be aware of it, miss, but you are a lady for whose opinion in such matters I have a high regard. And you understand Europe. I do not. I admit it. Everything seems to be verboten in Germany and everything else to be bad form in England. We walked down the steps together. What a picturesque old town, I said, looking round me well pleased. Its beauty appealed to me, for I had fifty pounds in pocket, and I had lunched sumptuously. Old town, he repeated, gazing with a blank stare. You call this town old, do you? Why, of course, just look at the cathedral, eight hundred years old, at least. He ran his eye down the streets, dissatisfied. Well, if this town is old, he said at last with a snap of his fingers, it's precious little for its age. 
and he strode away towards the railway station. "'What about the bicycle?' I asked, for it lay, a silent victor, against the railing of the steps, surrounded by a crowd of inquiring Teutons. He glanced at it carelessly. "'Oh, the wheel?' he said. "'You may keep it.' He said it so exactly in the tone in which one tells a waiter he may keep the change, that I resented the impertinence. "'No, thank you,' I answered. "'I do not require it.' He gazed at me open-mouthed. "'What? Put my foot in it again?' he interposed. "'Not high-toned enough, eh? Now I do regret it. No offence meant, miss, nor none need be taken. What I meant to insinuate was this.' You have won the big race for me. Folks will notice you and talk about you at Frankfort. If you ride a man or two, that'll make em talk the more. A mutual advantage. Benefits you, benefits me. You get the wheel, I get the advertisement. I saw that reciprocity was the lodestar of his life. Very well, Mr. Hitchcock, I said, pocketing my pride. I'll accept the machine and I'll ride it. Then a light dawned upon me. I saw eventualities. Look here, I went on innocently. Recollect, I was a girl just fresh from Girton. I am thinking of going on very soon to Switzerland. Now, why shouldn't I do this? Try to sell your machines, or rather take orders for them from anybody that admires them? A mutual advantage. Benefits you, benefits me. You sell your wheels, I get... He stared at me. The commission? I don't know what commission means, I answered, somewhat at sea as to the term. But I thought it might be worth your while, till the Manitou becomes better known, to pay me, say, ten percent on all orders I brought you. His face was one broad smile. "'I do admire you, miss,' he cried, standing still to inspect me. "'You may not know the meaning of the word commission, but darned if you haven't got a hang of the thing itself that would do honour to a Wall Street operator anyway.' "'Then that's business?' I asked eagerly, for I beheld vistas. "'Business,' he repeated. Yes, that's just about the size of it. Business. Advertisement, miss, may be the soul of commerce, but commissions its body. You go in and win. Ten percent on every order you send me. He insisted on taking my ticket back to Frankfort. My affair, miss, my affair. There was no gainsaying him. He was immensely elated. The biggest thing in cycles since Dunlop tires, he repeated. And tomorrow they'll give me advertisements gratis in every newspaper. Next morning he came round to call on me at the abode of unclaimed domestic angels. He was explicit and generous. Look here, miss, he began. I didn't do fair by you when you interviewed me about your agency last evening. I took advantage at the time of your youth and inexperience. You suggested ten percent as the amount of your commission on sales you might affect, and I jumped at it. That was conduct unworthy a gentleman. Now I will not deceive you. The ordinary commission on transactions in wheels is twenty-five percent. I am going to sell the Manitou at twenty English pounds apiece. You shall have your twenty-five percent on all orders. Five pounds for every machine I sell, I exclaimed, overjoyed. He nodded. That's so. I was simply amazed at this magnificent prospect. The cycle trade must be honeycombed with middlemen's profits, I cried, for I had my misgivings. That's so he replied again, then just you take and be a middle woman. But as a consistent socialist... 
it's your duty to fleece the capitalist and the consumer a mutual benefit triangular this time i get the order the public gets the machine and you get the commission i am richer you are richer and the public is mounted on much the best wheel ever yet invented that sounds plausible i admitted i shall try it on in switzerland i shall run up steep hills whenever i see any likely customers looking on then i shall stop and ask them the time as if quite accidentally he rubbed his hands you take to business like a young duck to the water he exclaimed admiringly that's the way to rake em in you go up and say to them why not investigate we defy competition leave the drudgery of walking uphill beside your cycle progress is the order of the day use modern methods this is the age of the telegraph the telephone and the typewriter you can no longer afford to go on with an antiquated antediluvian armor-plated wheel invest in a hill climber the last and lightest product of evolution is it common sense to buy an old style unautomatic single-geared inconvertible ten-ton machine when for the same money or less you can purchase the self-acting manitou a priceless gem as light as a feather with all the most recent additions and improvements be reasonable get the best that's the style to fetch em i laughed in spite of myself oh mr hitchcock i burst out that's not my style at all i shall say simply this is a lovely new bicycle you can see for yourself how it climbs hills try it if you wish it skims like a swallow and i get what they call five pounds commission on every one i can sell of them i think that way of dealing is much more likely to bring you in orders his admiration was undisguised well i do call you a woman of business miss he cried you see it at a glance that's so that's the right kind of thing to rope in the europeans some originality about you you take em on their own ground you've got the draw on them you have i like your system you'll just haul in the dollars i hope so i said fervently for i had evolved in my own mind oh such a lovely scheme for elsie petheridge's holidays he gazed at me once more if only i could get hold of a woman of business like you to soar through life with me he murmured i grew interested in my shoes his open admiration was getting quite embarrassing he paused a minute then he went on well what do you say to it to what i asked amazed to my proposition my offer i-i don't understand i stammered out bewildered the twenty-five per cent you mean no the devotion of a lifetime he answered looking sideways at me miss cayley when a business man advances a proposition commercial or otherwise he advances it because he means it he asks a prompt reply your time is valuable so is mine are you prepared to consider it mr hitchcock i said drawing back i think you misunderstand i think you do not realize all right miss he answered promptly though with a disappointed air if it cannot be managed it cannot be managed i understand your european exclusiveness i know your prejudices but this little episode need not antagonize with the normal course of ordinary business i respect you miss cayley you are a lady of intelligence of initiative and of high-toned culture i will wish you good day for the present without further words and i shall be happy at any time to receive your orders on the usual commission he backed out and was gone he was so honestly blunt that i really quite liked him next day i bade a tearless farewell to the blighted frows 
When I told those eight phlegmatic souls I was going, they all said, So, much as they had said, So, to every previous remark I had been moved to make to them. So is capital garnishing, but viewed as a staple of conversation I find it a trifle vapid, not to say monotonous. I set out on my wanderings, therefore, to go round the world on my own account, and my own Manitou, which last I grew to love in time with a love passing the love of Mr. Cyrus Hitchcock. I carried the strictly necessary before me in a small waterproof bicycling valise, but I sent on the portmanteau containing my whole estate, real and personal, to some point in advance which I hoped to reach from time to time in a day or two. My first day's journey was along a pleasant road from Frankfurt to Heidelberg, some fifty-four miles in all, skirting the mountains the greater part of the way. The Manitou took the ups and downs so easily that I diverged at intervals to choose side-paths over the wooded hills. I arrived at Heidelberg as fresh as a daisy, my mount not having turned a hair meanwhile, a favourite expression of cyclists which carries all the more conviction to an impartial mind because of the machine being obviously hairless. Thence I journeyed on by easy stages to Karlsruhe, Baden, Appenweer, and Offenburg, where I set my front wheel resolutely for the Black Forest. It is the prettiest and most picturesque route to Switzerland, and being also the hilliest, it would afford me, I thought, the best opportunity for showing off the Manitou's paces, and trying my prentice hand as an amateur cycle agent. From the quaint little black eagle at Offenburg, however, before I dashed into the forest, I sent off a letter to Elsie Petheridge, setting forth my lovely scheme for her summer holidays. She was delicate, poor child, and the London winters sorely tried her. I was now a millionaire, with the better part of fifty pounds in my pocket, so I felt I could afford to be royal in my hospitality. As I was leaving Frankfurt, I had called at a tourist agency and bought a second-class circular ticket from London to Lucerne and back. I made it second-class because I am opposed on principle to excessive luxury, and also because it was three guineas cheaper. Even fifty pounds will not last for ever, though I could scarcely believe it. You see, I am not wholly free, after all, from the besetting British vice of prudence. It was a mighty joy to me to be able to send this ticket to Elsie at her lodgings in Bayswater, pointing out to her that now the whole mischief was done, and that if she would not come out as soon as her summer vacation began, it was a point of honour with Elsie to say vacation instead of holidays, to join me at Lucerne and to stop with me as my guest at a mountain pension, the ticket would be wasted. I love burning my boats. Tis the only safe way for securing prompt action. Then I turned my flying wheels up into the black forest, growing weary of my loneliness, for it is not all jam to ride by oneself in Germany, and longing for Elsie to come out and join me. I loved to think how her dear pale cheeks would gain colour and tone on the hills about the Brunig, where, for business reasons, so I said to myself with the conscious pride of the commission agent, I proposed to pass the greater part of the summer. From Offenburg to Hornburg, the road makes a good, stiff climb of twenty-seven miles, and some twelve hundred English feet in altitude, with a fair number of minor undulations on the way to diversify it. I will not describe the route, though it is one of the most beautiful I have ever travelled, rocky hills, ruined castles, huge straight-stemmed pines that clamber up green slopes, or halt in sombre line against steeps of broken crag. The reality surpasses my poor powers of description, and the people I passed on the road were almost as quaint and picturesque in their way as the hills and the villages. The men in red-lined jackets, the women in black petticoats, 
short-waisted green bodices and broad-brimmed straw hats with black and crimson pompons but on the steepest gradient just before reaching hornberg i got my first nibble strange to say from two german students they wore heidelberg caps and were toiling up the incline with short broken wind i put on a spurt with the manitou and passed them easily i did it just at first in pure wantonness of health and strength but the moment i was clear of them it occurred to the business half of me that here was a good chance of taking an order filled with this bright idea i dismounted near the summit and pretended to be engaged in lubricating my bearings though as a matter of fact the manitou runs in a bath of oil self-feeding and needs no looking after presently my two heidelbergers straggled up hot dusty panting woman-like i pretended to take no notice one of them drew near and cast an eye on the manitou that's a new machine fraulein he said at last with more politeness than i expected it is i answered casually the latest model climbs hills like no other and i feigned to mount and glide off towards hornberg stop a moment pray fraulein my prospective buyer called out here heinrich i wish you this new so excellent mountain climbing machine without chain propelled more fully to investigate i am going on to hornberg i said with mixed feminine guile and commercial strategy still if your friend wishes to look they both jostled round it with achs innumerable and after minute inspection pronounced its principle wunderschön might i essay it heinrich asked oh by all means i answered he paced it downhill a few yards then skimmed up again it is a bird he cried to his friend with many guttural interjections like the eagle's flight so soars it come try the thing ludwig you permit fraulein i nodded they both mounted it several times it behaved like a beauty then one of them asked and where can man of this new so remarkable machine nearest by purchase himself make possessor i am the sole agent i burst out with swelling dignity if you will give me your orders with cash in hand for the amount i will send the cycle carriage paid to any address you desire in germany you they exclaimed incredulously the Fräulein is pleased to be humorous. Oh, very well, I answered, vaulting into the saddle. If you choose to doubt my word. I waved one careless hand and coasted off. Good morning, mein Herren. They lumbered after me on their ramshackle traction engines. Pardon, Fräulein, do not thus go away. Oblige us at least with the name and address of the maker. I perpended, like the hair over superintendent at Frankfurt. Look here, I said at last, telling the truth with frankness. I get twenty-five percent on all bicycles I sell. I am, as I say, the maker's sole agent. If you order through me, I touch my profit. If otherwise, I do not. Still, since you seem to be gentlemen, they bowed and swelled visibly, I will give you the address of the firm, trusting to your honour to mention my name. I handed them a card. If you decide on ordering. The price of the palfrey is four hundred marks. It is worth every fenig of it. And before they could say more, I had spurred my steed and swept off at full speed round a curve of the highway. I pencilled a note to my American that night from Hornburg detailing the circumstance but i am sorry to say for the discredit of humanity that when those two students wrote the same evening from their inn in the village 
to order manitous they did not mention my name doubtless under the misconception that by suppressing it they would save my commission however it gives me pleasure to add per contra as we say in business that when i arrived at lucerne a week or so later i found a letter post restante from mr cyrus hitchcock enclosing an english ten pound note he wrote that he had received two orders for manitous from hornberg and feeling considerable confidence that these must necessarily originate from my german students he had the pleasure of forwarding me what he hoped would be the first of many similar commissions i will not describe my further adventures on the still steeper mountain road from hornberg to triberg and st georgian how i got bites on the way from an english curate an austrian hussar and two unprotected american ladies nor how i angled for them all by riding my machine up impossible hills and then reclining gracefully to eat my lunch three times in one day on mossy banks at the summit i felt a perfect little hypocrite but mr hitchcock had remarked that business is business and i will only add in confirmation of his view that by the time i reached lucerne i had sown the good seed in fifteen separate human souls no less than four of which brought forth fruit in orders for manitous before the end of the season i had now so little fear what the morrow might bring forth that i settled down in a comfortable hotel at lucerne till elsie's holidays began and amused myself meanwhile by picking out the hilliest roads i could find in the neighbourhood in order to display my steel steed's possibilities to the best advantage by the end of july little elsie joined me she was half angry at first that i should have forced the ticket and my hospitality upon her nonsense dear i said smoothing her hair for her pale face quite frightened me what is the good of a friend if she will not allow you to do her little favours but brownie you said you wouldn't stop and be dependent upon me one day longer than was necessary in london that was different i cried that was me this is you i am a great strong healthy thing fit to fight the battle of life and take care of myself you elsie are one of those fragile little flowers which tis everybody's duty to protect and to care for she would have protested more but i stifled her mouth with kisses indeed for nothing did i rejoice in my prosperity so much as for the chance it gave me of helping poor dear overworked overwrought elsie we took up our quarters thenceforth at a high-perched little guest-house near the top of the brunig it was bracing for elsie and it lay close to a tourist track where i could spread my snares and exhibit the manitou in its true colours to many passing visitors elsie tried it and found she could ride on it with ease she wished she had one of her own a bright idea struck me in fear and trembling i wrote suggesting to mr hitchcock that i had a girl-friend from england stopping with me in switzerland and that two manitous would surely be better than one as an advertisement i confess i stood aghast at my own cheek but my hand i fear was rapidly growing subdued to that it worked in anyhow i sent the letter off and waited developments by return of post came an answer from my american dear miss by rail herewith please receive one ladies number four automatic quadruple geared self-feeding manitou as per your esteemed favour of july twenty seventh for which i desire to thank you the more i see of your way of doing business the more i do admire you this is an elegant poster two high-toned english ladies mounted on manitous careering up the alps represent to both of us quite a mint of money the mutual benefit to me to you and to the other lady ought to be simply incalculable 
i shall be pleased at any time to hear of any further developments of your very remarkable advertising skill and i am obliged to you for this brilliant suggestion you have been good enough to make to me respectfully cyrus w hitchcock what am i to have it for nothing brownie elsie exclaimed bewildered when i read the letter to her i assumed the airs of a woman of the world why certainly my dear i answered as if i always expected to find bicycles showered upon me it is a mutual arrangement benefits him benefits you reciprocity is the groundwork of business he gets the advertisement you get the amusement it's a form of handbill like the ladies who exhibit their back hair don't you know in that window in regent street thus inexpensively mounted we scoured the country together up the steepest hills between stanstadt and myringen we had lots of nibbles one lady in particular often stopped to look on and admire the manitou she was a nice-looking widow of forty-five very fresh and round-faced a mrs Everly, we soon found out who owned a charming chalet on the hills above longern she spoke to us more than once what a perfect dear of a machine she cried i wonder if i dare try it can you cycle i asked i could once she answered i was awfully fond of it but dr fortescue langley won't let me any longer try it i said dismounting she got up and rode oh isn't it just lovely she cried ecstatically buy one i put in they're as smooth as silk they cost only twenty pounds and on every machine i sell i get five pounds commission i should love to she answered but dr fortescue langley who is he i asked i don't believe in drug drenchers she looked quite shocked oh he's not that kind you know she put in breathlessly he's the celebrated esoteric faith healer he won't let me move far away from Lungern, though i'm longing to be off to england again for the summer my boy's at portsmouth then why don't you disobey him her face was a study i daren't she answered in an awestruck voice he comes here every summer and he does me so much good you know he diagnoses my inner self he treats me psychically when my inner self goes wrong my bangle turns dusky she held up her right hand with an indian silver bangle on it and sure enough it was tarnished with a very thin black deposit my soul is ailing now she said in a comically serious voice but it is seldom so in switzerland the moment i land in england the bangle turns black and remains black till i get back to lucerne again when she had gone i said to elsie that is odd about the bangle state of health might affect it i suppose though it looks to me like a surface deposit of sulphide i knew nothing of chemistry i admit but i had sometimes messed about in the laboratory at college with some of the other girls and i remembered now that sulphide of silver was a blackish-looking body like the film on the bangle however at the time i thought no more about it by dint of stopping and talking we soon got quite intimate with mrs Everly. as always happens i found out i had known some of her cousins in edinburgh where i always spent my holidays while i was at girton she took an interest in what she was kind enough to call my originality and before a fortnight was out our hotel being uncomfortably crowded she had invited elsie and myself to stop with her at the chalet we went and found it a delightful little home mrs Everly was charming but we could see at every turn that dr fortescue langley had acquired a firm hold over her he's so clever you know she said 
and so spiritual. He exercises such strong odilic force. He binds my being together. If he misses a visit, I feel my inner self goes all to pieces. Does he come often? I asked, growing interested. Oh, dear, no, she answered. I wish he did. It would be ever so good for me. But he's so much run after. I am but one among many. He lives at Chateau d'Aix, and comes across to see patients in this district once a fortnight. It is a privilege to be attended by an intuitive seer like Dr. Fortescue Langley. Mrs. Everly was rich, left comfortably, as the phrase goes, but with a clause which prevented her marrying again without losing her fortune, and I could gather from various hints that Dr. Fortescue Langley, whoever he might be, was bleeding her to some tune, using her soul and her inner self as his financial lancet. I also noticed that what she said about the bangle was strictly true, generally bright as a new pin, on certain mornings it was completely blackened. I had been at the chalet ten days, however, before I began to suspect the real reason. Then it dawned upon me one morning in a flash of inspiration. The evening before had been cold, for at the height where we were perched, even in August, we often found the temperature chilly in the night, and I heard Mrs. Everly tell Cecile, her maid, to fill the hot water bottle. It was a small point, but it somehow went home to me. Next day the bangle was black, and Mrs. Everly lamented that her inner self must be suffering from an attack of evil vapours. I held my peace at the time, but I asked Cecile a little later to bring me that hot water bottle. As I more than half suspected, it was made of India rubber, wrapped carefully up in the usual red flannel bag. "'Lend me your brooch, Elsie,' I said. "'I want to try a little experiment.' "'Won't a franc do as well?' Elsie asked, tendering one. "'That's equally silver.' "'I think not,' I answered. "'A franc is most likely too hard.' It has base metal to alloy it. But I will vary the experiment by trying both together. Your brooch is Indian and therefore soft silver. The native jewellers never use alloy. Hand it over. It will clean with a little plate powder if necessary. I'm going to see what blackens Mrs. Everly's bangle. I laid the frank and the brooch on the bottle, filled with hot water and placed them for warmth in the fold of a blanket. After déjeuner, we inspected them. As I anticipated, the brooch had grown black on the surface with a thin, iridescent layer of silver sulphide, while the frank had hardly suffered at all from the exposure. I called in Mrs. Everly and explained what I had done. She was astonished and half incredulous. How could you ever think of it? she cried admiringly. Why, I was reading an article yesterday about India rubber in one of your magazines, I answered, and the person who wrote it said the raw gum was hardened for vulcanizing by mixing it with sulphur. When I heard you ask Cecile for the hot water bottle, I thought at once, the sulphur and the heat account for the tarnishing of Mrs. Everly's bangle. And the frank doesn't tarnish, then that must be why my other silver bracelet, which is English make, and harder, never changes colour. And Dr. Fortescue Langley assured me it was because the soft one was of Indian metal and had mystic symbols on it, symbols that answered to the cardinal moods of my subconscious self and that darkened in sympathy. I jumped at a clue. He talked about your subconscious self? I broke in. Yes, she answered. He always does. It's the key note of his system. He heals by that alone. But, my dear, after this, how can I ever believe in him? Does he know about the hot water bottle? I asked. 
Oh, yes, he ordered me to use it on certain nights, and when I go to England, he says I must never be without one. I see now that was why my inner self invariably went wrong in England. It was all just the sulphur blackening the bangle. I reflected. A middle-aged man, I asked. Stout, diplomatic-looking, with wrinkles round his eyes, and a distinguished grey moustache, twirled up oddly at the corners? That's the man, my dear, his very picture. Where on earth have you seen him? And he talks of subconscious selves, I went on. He practices on that basis. He says it's no use prescribing for the outer man. To do that is to treat mere symptoms. The subconscious self is the inner seat of diseases. How long has he been in Switzerland? Oh, he comes here every year. He arrived this season late in May, I fancy. When will he visit you again, Mrs. Everly? Tomorrow morning. I made up my mind at once. Then I must see him without being seen, I said. I think I know him. He is our Count, I believe. For I had told Mrs. Everly and Elsie the queer story of my journey from London. Impossible, my dear, impossible. I have implicit faith in him. Wait and see, Mrs. Everly. You acknowledge that he duped you over the affair of the bangle. There are two kinds of dupes. One kind, the commonest, goes on believing in its deceiver, no matter what happens. The other, far rarer, has the sense to know it has been deceived if you make the deception as clear as day to it. Mrs. Everly was, fortunately, of the rarer class. Next morning, Dr. Fortescue Langley arrived by appointment. As he walked up the path, I glanced at him from my window. It was the Count, not a doubt of it. On his way to gull his dupes in Switzerland, he had tried to throw in an incidental trifle of a diamond robbery. I telegraphed the facts at once to Lady Georgina at Schlangenbad. She answered, I am coming. Ask the man to meet his friend on Wednesday. Mrs. Everly, now almost convinced, invited him. On Wednesday morning, with a bounce, Lady Georgina burst in upon us. My dear, such a journey, alone, at my age. But there, I haven't known a happy day since you left me. Oh, yes, I got my Gretchen. Unsophisticated? Well, hmm, that's not the word for it. I declare to you, Lois, there isn't a trick of the trade, in Paris or London, not a perquisite or a tip that that girl isn't up to. Comes straight from the remotest recesses of the Black Forest, and hadn't been with me a week, I assure you, honour bright, before she was bandolining her yellow hair and rouging her cheeks and wearing my brooches and wagering gloves with the hotel waiters upon the Baden races. And her language! And her manners! Why weren't you born in that station of life, I wonder, child, so that I might offer you five hundred a year, and all found, to come and live with me forever? But this Gretchen, her fringe, her shoes, her ribbons, upon my soul, my dear, I don't know what girls are coming to nowadays. Ask Mrs. Lynn Linton, I suggested, as she paused. She is a recognized authority on the subject. The cantankerous old lady stared at me. And this Count, she went on, so you have really tracked him? You're a wonderful girl, my dear. I wish you were a lady's maid. You'd be worth me any money. I explained how I had come to hear of Dr. Fortescue Langley. Lady Georgina waxed warm. Dr. Fortescue Langley, she exclaimed. The wicked wretch! But he didn't get my diamonds. I've carried them here in my hands all the way from Wiesbaden. I wasn't going to leave them for a single day to the tender mercies of that unspeakable Gretchen. The fool would lose them. Well, we'll catch him this time, Lois, 
and we'll give him ten years for it. Ten years, Mrs. Evelyn cried, clasping her hands in horror. Oh, Lady Georgina! We waited in Mrs. Evelyn's dining room, the old lady and I, behind the folding doors. At three precisely, Dr. Fortescue Langley walked in. I had difficulty in restraining Lady Georgina from falling upon him prematurely. He talked a lot of high-flown nonsense to Mrs. Everly and Elsie about the influences of the planets and the seventy-five emanations and the eternal wisdom of the East and the medical efficacy of subconscious suggestion. Excellent patter, all of it, quite as good in its way as the diplomatic patter he had poured forth in the train to Lady Georgina. It was rich in spheres, in elements, in cosmic forces. At last, as he was discussing the reciprocal action of the inner self upon the exhalations of the lungs, we pushed back the door and walked calmly in upon him. His breath came and went. The exhalations of the lungs showed visible perturbation. He rose and stared at us. For a second he lost his composure. Then, as bold as brass, he turned, with a cunning smile, to Mrs. Everley. "'Where on earth did you pick up such acquaintances?' he inquired, in a well-simulated tone of surprise. "'Yes, Lady Georgina, I have met you before, I admit, but it can hardly be agreeable to you to reflect under what circumstances.' Lady Georgina was beside herself. "'You dare!' she cried, confronting him. You dare to brazen it out, you miserable sneak. But you can't bluff me now. I have the police outside. Which I regret to confess was a light-hearted fiction. The police, he echoed, drawing back. I could see he was frightened. I had an inspiration again. Take off that moustache. I said calmly, in my most commanding voice. He clapped his hand to it in horror. In his agitation he managed to pull it a little bit awry. It looked so absurd, hanging there, all crooked, that I thought it kinder to him to remove it altogether. The thing peeled off with difficulty, for it was a work of art, very firmly and gracefully fastened with sticking plaster. But it peeled off at last, and with it the whole of the Count's and Dr. Fortescue Langley's distinction. The man stood revealed, a very palpable manservant. Lady Georgina stared hard at him. "'Where have I seen you before?' she murmured slowly. "'That face is familiar to me.' "'Why, yes!' You went once to Italy as Mr. Marmaduke Ashurst's courier. I know you now. Your name is Higginson. It was a come-down for the Comte de la Roche-sur-Loire, but he swallowed it like a man at a single gulp. Yes, my lady, he said, fingering his hat nervously, now all was up. You are quite right, my lady, but what would you have me do? Times are hard on us couriers. Nobody wants us now. I must take to what I can. He assumed once more the tone of the Vienna diplomat. Que voulez-vous, madame? These are revolutionary days. A man of intelligence must move with the zeitgeist. Lady Georgina burst into a loud laugh. And to think she cried, that I talk to this lackey from London to Malines without ever suspecting him. Higginson, you're a fraud, but you're a precious clever one. He bowed. I am happy to have merited Lady Georgina Foley's commendation, he answered with his palm on his heart in his grandiose manner. But I shall hand you over to the police all the same. You are a thief and a swindler. He assumed a comic expression. Unhappily not a thief, he objected. This young lady prevented me from appropriating your diamonds. Convey, the wise call it. 
I wanted to take your jewel case, and she put me off with a sandwich tin. I wanted to make an honest penny out of Mrs. Everley, and she confronts me with your ladyship and tears my moustache off. Lady Georgina regarded him with a hesitating expression. But I shall call the police, she said, wavering visibly. De Grasse, my lady, de Grasse. Is it worth while? Poor C. Pudichaud's. Consider, I have really affected nothing. Will you charge me with having taken, in error, a small tin sandwich case, value elevenpence? An affair of a week's imprisonment. That is positively all you can bring up against me. And, brightening up visibly, I have the case still. I will return it to-morrow with pleasure to your ladyship. But the India-rubber water-bottle, I put in. You have been deceiving Mrs. Everley. It blackens silver, and you told her lies in order to extort money under false pretenses. He shrugged his shoulders. You are too clever for me, young lady, he broke out. I have nothing to say to you. But Lady Georgina... Mrs. Everley, you are human. Let me go. Reflect. I have things I could tell that would make both of you look ridiculous. That journey to Maline, Lady Georgina. Those Indian charms, Mrs. Everley. Besides, you have spoiled my game. Let that suffice you. I can practice in Switzerland no longer. Allow me to go in peace and I will try once more to be indifferent honest. He backed slowly towards the door with his eyes fixed on them. I stood by and waited. Inch by inch he retreated. Lady Georgina looked down abstractedly at the carpet. Mrs. Everley looked up abstractedly at the ceiling. Neither spoke another word. The rogue backed out by degrees. Then he sprang downstairs, and before they could decide, was well out into the open. Lady Georgina was the first to break the silence. After all, my dear, she murmured, turning to me, there was a deal of sound English common sense about Dogberry. I remembered then his charge to the watch to apprehend a rogue. How if a will not stand? Why, then, take no note of him but let him go, and presently call the rest of the watch together, and thank God you are rid of a knave. When I remembered how Lady Georgina had hobnobbed with the Count from Ostend to Maline, I agreed to a great extent both with her and with Dogberry. End of chapter 4 The Amateur Commission Agent